I'm Danny Levy and this is Digital Transformation and Leadership. Today I'm joined by Paul Koutrakassas. Paul is a strategic advisor to CEOs, senior executives, boards and shareholders of companies operating in or interested in the technology and digital industry sectors. He's on a mission to help large established non-tech companies partner with technology companies to avoid being blindsided by exponential change. Paul has recently written a book titled Go Tech or Go Extinct. In the book, he shares his revolutionary approach to transforming legacy companies into forward-thinking industry leaders through the strategic acquisition of disruptive technology companies. We'll hear about his leadership journey, some of the key takeaways from Go Tech or Go Extinct, and a whole lot more when we chat with today's guest, Paul Koutrakassas, CEO and founder at Aqua Partners. It's coming up next. Paul, welcome to Digital Transformation and Leadership. Danny, thank you. Pleasure to be here with you today. And you're, you're dialing in from, from London? From London. Yeah, just outside of London. Okay. Yeah. So uh, just to kick us off, I thought it would be good if you could share a little bit more about your, your company and what it is Aqua Partners is doing. Sure, sure. Aqua Partners, uh, we are an M&A strategic advisory firm, <clears throat> and we have two core businesses. One of them is helping uh, tech companies, uh, founders, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, with either raising institutional capital to grow or to exit typically in the form of a trade sale. Uh, and, and it could be typically to a strategic buyer or to private equity. Uh, the other core business, which we started about three, three and a half years ago, is what we call buy side. Uh, and it's advising large non-tech corporates, established companies, on how to <clears throat> acquire and invest in the right tech companies to avoid being disrupted, but also to accelerate uh, their market growth. And, and we call that business techquisition, which is a, a methodology we actually trademarked a couple of years ago. I like it, yeah. that's a good one. Um, so when, when large corporates are looking to acquire and invest in disruptive tech companies, you know, what is it that they're usually looking for and, and how do they create maximum value from a partnership and I guess, how do they kind of ensure they get the culture fit right? Well, actually, sometimes they don't know what they're looking for to start out with. They, they, they know that they have to do something more than what they're doing in-house. <clears throat> so most established companies already have uh, initiatives underway in the form of innovation. Typically, they're uh, an offshoot of their IT department or their R&D uh, R organization but they're not necessarily able to do it all in-house in terms of innovating, transforming, and uh, both developing new tools and solutions as well as getting uh, the culture right or the mindset right of a technology, becoming a technology-enabled company. So <clears throat> in many cases, they're not exactly sure what they're looking for to start with. And it's why we created a few years ago a step zero. So our acquisition methodology has got 12 steps to it. And the step zero, which we often will call just first phase, phase zero, uh, involved helping companies identify where in their entire value chain is the most fertile ground uh, for, for leveraging partnerships, investments, and acquisitions of tech companies. 
Uh, it's really prioritizing the inflection points in the value chain, and that's that's not easy to do. You can't you can't do it all on day one. You've you've got to prioritize your response. So we help them with that, uh, <clears throat> and then we help get clarity and alignment at the executive committee level. You know, in these in these large corporates, you can't just have one executive making a decision and then assuming it's going to to, to be executed. It just doesn't work that way. So a lot of our work is done to uh, to to help the entire management team get alignment on what it is they they believe we all believe is the right thing to do then once once the alignment is secure and the clarity is secure <clears throat> we can move into the next phase which is basically turning over every stone scouring the planet for you know out of thousands tens of thousands of, of tech companies which are the right ones you know which are the ones out of tens of thousands are the ones that make the most sense uh, in terms of fitting in with the step zero of where on our value chain is is the priority area to, to be looking, whether it's you know raw materials, procurement, production, assembly, logistics, supply chain, all the way through to you know marketing and then sales and the end consumer. Uh, there are a lot of different places to play. Ultimately, you want to digitize and automate your entire value chain. That's the holy grail. And do you have backups? I mean, because obviously sometimes it doesn't always come off or maybe your competitor snatches up the, the company you wanted to buy. How does that work? So our process deliberately uh, builds in redundancy. And so this is by the time you're in step three, four, five, we've taken the list of, let's say, you know, 20,000 possible companies down to 300. Uh, then we're reviewing those top 300 in quite some detail. Uh, we end up with a list. Uh, which we say maximum of 30 companies that we go out and contact and on a no-names basis. And we're contacting typically the CEO, the founder, or you know one of the key shareholders typically sitting on the board, really to learn as much as we can about that company. Uh, not just the financials uh, and some of the, the product KPIs and stats, but also about the people, you know, the you know, the, 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 why did they set the company up to begin with? What was the original inspiration? What's the goal? What's the what's the aspiration? Uh, do the founders like hiring people? Do they like firing people? Do they like raising money? Uh, how long do they want to keep on doing that? Do do they want to run the business for the next fifty years, or would they one day like to find the perfect big brother strategic partner? And if so, who would that be? Who could they imagine it being? What type of industry would it be in? Uh, how much does money matter to them versus changing the world? All of those kind of questions. Typically, there's about 100 questions we ask. Um, and by the end of those discussions with those, say, 30 companies, we end up really getting to know the people and how they think and what they want. And that leads us to fairly accurate judgment as to the culture fit. Um, and by the time we, you know, we finish talking to all, let's say, it's, it's 30 companies, we end up with a list typically of between three to seven companies that we really, really like and we think would be a phenomenal uh, fit. Um, and that's when we begin the meetings. So that's when we introduce our client, the established company, to that to that tech company. Uh, and it's, it's where we introduce something called the Chalk Talk script. So because we've done so much work, homework essentially, uh, on that target company, we know everything about them before we go into that meeting which I'd have to say is quite rare. And I'd also say it's one of the reasons why we get all these statistics on M&A not working or M&A proving not to increase the share price of the acquirer and that so many deals you know, don't add value. Well, this is one of the main reasons. It's not done properly. So 
the, the two reasons, 80-20 rule in my mind, why M&A tends to fail is A, it's the wrong company because the homework wasn't done, and or B, the deal was done in the wrong way. But you know what happens when we we do the deal and six months later the people you know don't like working for the big company and then they leave. And look, it's a legitimate concern. But one of the whole reasons for going through this twelve-step process and going through the uh, the painstaking work of doing the you know, let's call them interviews, discussions with the target company founders in advance, and doing the Choctaw script and having these discussions is to be able to get a, a mutual understanding and emotional bond uh, with each other. And yes, it is possible, absolutely possible to do. And and when that's done right, then, you know, no matter how many layers of contracts uh, and testing you do, uh, you've established a a bond, um, you've established an excitement for the future that the target company employees, as long as they stay together as a team, um, are are happy to, to get behind. And can be, you know, so excited that frankly they wouldn't want to do anything else, and that's what we see with the companies that have uh, have successfully done deals like this. That's exactly what we've seen, where the the target company employees are excited, they're happy, they love it, and they don't want to leave. And that's what it's all about. I just wanted to get now to your to your book, uh, Go Tech or Go Extinct. Um, the the book reflects the results and an array of interpretations of the one-to-one calls and meetings you conducted with C-level executives during 2018 and 2019. Um, when I was reading it, it gave me plenty new, of new ideas around uh, innovation and lots of fresh insights. Um, I was really interested to know kind of what what inspired you to write the book and and what what you want readers to take away. Well, it's <laughs> funny. It's a good question. I, I never really thought I would be writing a, a book um, as, a, as an investment banker, an entrepreneur, an investor, and so on. It just it never occurred to me. But, you know, I think it was the, I think it was the early discussions that I had on this. So after, again, um, I fell out of my chair literally when I heard Walmart was acquiring Jet.com with $3.3 billion and, and a 13 times revenue multiple, which, you know, frankly shocked me for quite a conservative board to agree to that deal. I knew something was up, something big was up. And so our whole team started researching similar deals in all industries. And after about three months, we concluded, you know, this is absolutely uh, a trend that is now finally happening. I'd been been thinking, you know, five, six, seven, eight years beforehand that it that it would have to happen, that tech would infiltrate uh, all these other industries through acquisitions. And now we could see it was happening. So, um, you know, after that, then we started having discussions with 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 some you know, selected large established companies. Mm-hmm. And I just found there was huge reluctance and, un, un, you know, to me, an unbelievable level of limited beliefs floating around the executive suites at some of the, the larger established companies that they just, they didn't get it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't really understand it. They didn't believe it. And I, and I, and I just was scratching my head thinking, look, um, I've got to do something here because I, I just felt so strongly about what I saw from our research and from some of the discussions we had with some companies and what I was hearing and in, in other discussions. And I just felt I had to write a book on this, I, that I had accumulated enough experience uh, in, in the technology world with tech companies going back to 1990 and through two different, you know, quite different crashes, uh, the ups and the downs and had accumulated this, uh, I guess, this insight of how the, how tech was just taking over the world little by little, I thought, well, 
it's going to take over every industry and it's going to take over every company. And it's just a matter of time. And it's absolutely inevitable. It may not be imminent, but it's inevitable. And I could just see it so clearly. And uh, I, I, no one else had really written about this. So Klaus Schwab wrote about the fourth industrial revolution. Um, I, I think maybe that helped right when I read that book, it was on a weekend, um, <laughs> a sunny weekend. I was outside, read, read the whole book, underlining it, just thinking this is absolutely spot on. And the one area that he didn't go into much detail about was the impact on, on the companies themselves. And I thought, look, this is crying out for a book that I had been building in my own mind that, that complements, um, you know, his book and where he left off was this, you know, the fourth industrial revolution is, is going to be far more powerful than any other industrial revolution affecting all industries and society and communities and educational uh, institutions and NGOs. And, and, and yet there wasn't enough there yet for the established companies that, you know, at least in Europe, deliver 95% of the goods and services that we humans uh, consume or use. Now, that's not true with technology, where we are, for example, in Europe, consuming uh, all types of tech services, but they're mainly from US-based tech companies. So, in you know, for the sake of Europe, I, that was the immediate thought was, you know, Europe doesn't have uh, the, the tech companies that the US has. And yes, we do talk about, um, in, in an absolute sense, uh, in the last 10, 20 years, Europe has more and more tech companies. Of course, they do uh, in Europe. And and it's a bright future. And there's more and more capital, venture capital coming into Europe to fund these companies. But in a relative sense, uh, Europe is not hasn't moved uh, much compared to to North America or, frankly, to China and parts of Asia. So it, it, that, that was really feeding on me. And I just thought, you know, there just there needs to be uh, there needs to be a way that we can help communicate our vision uh, and, and, and what we see happening to these established companies, businesses. It has to be a way of communicating that. And I thought the best, best way to do it actually would be just to write a book. So, so I did it. Fantastic. And, and how long did it take you? It was, uh, it, was, it was a lot more painful than I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, it took about 18 months, okay. and I had to dedicate most of my weekends, um, which – can put pressure on a marriage when you have three little children uh, and every, every business trip, you know, on the plane, on the laptop, it was, it was pretty painful. Um, and, and not just writing it, but you know, the round of edits back and forth and so on. So uh, look, it was worth it. And um, you know, no pain, no gain. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I, I, it's just one of those things you got to know what you're getting yourself into. You've got to really have uh, passion, mm -hmm. conviction, belief um, to get through it. And, uh, and I guess I did, and, and I'm glad I did. And look, every day I, I wake up and I, it, I see that it, that it is, it is just proving to be true. I always sensed that this would be future proofed. In other words, as every day goes, goes by, we see more evidence of established companies falling by the wayside, especially now in retail. Yeah. Um, but we were seeing this in retail, even before the shelter in place, the lockdown and COVID-19, you know, the, this was, uh, this was clearly happening. Um, and and it continues to happen, and now we're seeing it uh, being being uh, you know, effectively um, real in so many different industries, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's yeah, it's it's all kind of happening as we speak. Mm. I guess the Walmart acquiring uh, Jet.com was quite protracted, right? I, mean, I guess that would have come out of their long battle with Amazon that kind of has been raging on for a long time. 
Well, I, you know, Walmart did have Walmart.com, so they had a site. Um, and, you know, of course, as most companies do, they did everything they possibly could in-house with their own team to make it uh, competitive. Um, and I don't know how much they spent on it, but probably tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars over time. And it, it just wasn't, you know, just wasn't doing the trick. And they brought in Jet and Jet's team. And within a matter of a few quarters, the Walmart.com site came alive and was delivering phenomenal growth quarter on quarter. And that, that growth on the new Walmart.com site, you know, after the Jet.com team came in and really did their thing, uh, delivered an increase in shareholder value to the Walmart shareholders of about 60, $60 billion in about, uh, I think it was about 18 months. Okay. From the time they uh, they completed that acquisition so let's get into a bit more about your entrepreneurial spirit now paul um you've been an entrepreneur since 1993 sorry i'm giving away your age a bit here uh co-founding <laughs> you've co-founded a hedge fund you know market research firm uh telecoms operation company and a, and a software company um i'm always really interested to know kind of what you've took taken away from these experiences to let you, to kind of lead you to where you are today well Yes, I guess it's been a mix of experiences that has led to a perspective which has almost subconsciously, I think, uh, led me to leaning into this new effort of, of helping uh, established non-tech companies become fully technology-enabled mm -hmm. companies or fully tech companies. So it's, uh, you know, it's the combination of, in the early years, back in, uh, well, starting out at G Capital in New York in, in leverage buyout. So understanding uh, leverage in the form of, of, of capital and debt. Uh, and also, by the way, I should say the, the experience that I had at G Capital was quite a special one because it was kind of the first, in my mind, first corporate venture capital arm of quite a big one. Mm -hmm. But uh, G Capital would not do a deal, would not commit a significant amount of, of debt and equity to a company unless it was sponsored by one of the GE divisions, GE Power or Lighting or, or, or some other division. And, and that was powerful because GE Capital got insight from an industrial partner that it otherwise maybe wouldn't get. Um, and GE, the parent company, was able to get value in the form of you know, one of the heads of those divisions sponsoring the deal that GE Capital would fund. So it was, it was a real win-win. And in any case, I think that that's where it started was seeing how uh, the, the, the fit of industrial know-how and, and need with the ability to provide capital to you know, acquire an asset or invest in a company um, could, could really you know, create value, create stakeholder value over time. So that's where it started. And then doing tech deals you know, based out of London back in 1991 and in telecoms and uh, advising you know, telco operators and experiencing the deregulation and privatization of telecom operators, and you know, at the same time in the mid '90s, and then we had 3G, as well as the the the, the introduction of the internet in the, in the mid '90s, and Netscape doing the the IPO in '95, which I remember very well. Everybody saw it's a loss making company, and you know, it's it's hard to do IPOs of loss making companies. Well, that's kind of where it started, and that all boomed for the following five years into 2000, 95 to 2000, with this pot period of deregulation and privatization. And and 3G and uh, and you know, internet.com all happening together at the same time, which led to that incredible 
boom in 2000 and the bust from 2001 to 2003. So I learned from that. I learned from the bust, uh, running, you know, running our own firm. So being an entrepreneur during that time was, was fascinating. It was painful, of course, during the dot-com nuclear winter <laughs> from 01 to 03, but we happened to do well. I won't go into the detail, but we, we were uh, very entrepreneurial, very nimble. And, um, we didn't, we didn't believe that, uh, the market should control us. We, we control our own destiny like any entrepreneur should think. And we had a plan B and we acted on a plan B and we even had a plan C. And I think every entrepreneur should have a plan B and plan C uh, in place at all times, because you never know when that black swan will hit, or maybe it's not even a black swan. Maybe you can see it coming. You just, but you got to be ready. So I learned from that. And then, you know, setting up another investment banking firm and, you know, immediately after in 2003 and then growing that with partners and people uh, again um, and, and seeing how technology again, uh, you know, change would change the world. So one interesting thing is that after the, the, the crash and the nuclear winter from 2000 to 2003, mm-hmm. it was so bad so long. I didn't know if tech was coming back. Um, I mean, I just, I just couldn't be sure that we're going to have, uh, you know, tech, industry again in the same way that we wouldn't have the growth. Um, and then I was able to see Web 2.0. Um, we sold a company in the UK, Gumtree, to eBay back in 2005. And I spent a bit of time with the eBay uh, senior management and, and strategy team in the West Coast and could see what they were seeing and Web 2.0, and it was all going to come back. But what's interesting now is, compared to then, is if we have a crash now, and I look, I wouldn't consider what we've just experienced as a crash. Crash. It's it's been a correction, um, and I don't think it's over yet. I you know I think I think the big one is is still coming, but if we compare the two, um, there is no question in in my mind, or maybe anyone's mind, really, that 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 tech has somehow been impacted, uh, or would be impacted by the next crash. You know, tech now, excuse me, I think in most people's minds, um, is here to stay. Tech is is here to stay. It's it's for real. It's it's not going down. It's not going away. It's only going to get stronger and stronger, despite whatever economic environment may hit us. Whether it's hyperinflation or it's you know just a sheer economic crash, doesn't matter. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the advice you give to entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs of startup tech companies. So, you know, for those startup um, people at startups that are listening or thinking about doing a startup company, what are the key things people need to do with their startup to be successful? Well, it depends what stage we're talking about. If it's just an idea, uh, then they've got to test, 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 you know, get it out, test it. Um, Now, once it's beyond the test phase and, you know, you're, you're able to sell something, then it's literally sell it, sell, sell something to someone. Um, and, and then, you know, test their experience of it. Uh, is it a good or a bad experience? Would they buy more? Would they spread the word? And that's, that's what I find today being, uh, so powerful as a tool for entrepreneurs is there's so many ways of spreading the word and word of mouth is still the most powerful form of marketing, but you can spread the word now, uh, in, in, you know, through social media or through you know, any kind of, of a, a digital channel that, it's just easier to get feedback. So the, the, the number one bit of advice is for any any B2B or B2C entrepreneurs, even as they're going through even a Series A funding, it's to constantly test and get feedback and get inside your customer's head and try to understand 
What do they really want? And how are they experiencing your product, your solution, your service? Do they love it? Or do they just kind of like it? Is it need to have? Are they drooling to have it? What would, the, what would their life be like if they didn't have it? You know, that to me is the acid test, is if you took your product or your solution away from your customer, how would they feel? And, and measure that on a scale of one to 10. Now, it's one of the reasons why you might want to hire a market research firm or some type of research firm. Um, we have done that in the past, and I strongly recommend uh, that entrepreneurs spend a little bit of their precious cash on doing market research with their customers or, or you know, what is getting the voice of the customer because they may not always tell you or they may not share honestly on social media or very often they're not giving feedback for, for whatever reason. Um, so you, you can't necessarily trust the, the normal feedback engines. So getting an independent uh, market research firm to talk to your customers, the early customers, and really understand their experience of your product or your solution is so important because that gives you the ammunition you need to do a course correction. I mean, every tech company that I have advised or helped or that I can even think of, every single one has had one thing in common, and that is they've all had a course correction. They've all pivoted. They've all, at some point, pivoted you know, many, many times to go in the direction that is the natural flow where the, the you know, the force of gravity that, that customers want and that where there's, there's something that resonates with your customers. And so the beauty of, uh, of, of living, you know, in today's world of technology platforms is it doesn't have to cost a lot or take a long time to do that. And, you know, 20 years ago, my God, you know, you, you, you couldn't do surveys on, on the internet or through email I mean, you could, but, but it was also rustic. You'd have to do it the old-fashioned way, and it would take a lot of time, and it would cost a lot, um, and, and therefore, things were just slower, whereas today, you can make these adjustments very, very quickly and quickly end up exactly in the place where your customer wants. And, and I'm, I'm emphasizing this to answer your question because entrepreneurs tend to be stubborn, and they often will listen to advice, but they don't accept it or they don't act on it. They'll just keep doing what's in their stubborn head. Sometimes that works. You know, sometimes it works really well. Sometimes you get a brilliant entrepreneur who's a savant, who just absolutely understands uh, what's what's going on inside a customer's heart and head. But but that's you know, that's risky, and it's not everyone. And uh, the more sensible way, I believe, as an entrepreneur, to really get to the truth as soon as you can. The truth is, give the customer what he or she wants. Um, is to is to do the work, you know, and do the work, spend them on money, get independent views, uh, and so you can move very quickly to make the adjustments to give the customer what they want, and make sure that that they know that you're giving it to them. I guess in the end as well. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. you, you then have to follow up and ensure that you know that that hopefully they still are a customer. If they're not, then you move on the new. You know, and maybe that's maybe the decision is we were selling the wrong thing to the wrong people. You know, maybe the output is we need to make an adjustment to our solution. Maybe we didn't, we don't go B to look. I've seen many cases, you know, move from B to C to B to B or vice versa. Uh, I was an investor in a company once that I thought had a very successful B to B platform, quite successful, uh, and had a a blue chip customer that loved what it was doing and would have been there for years. And then uh, a well known VC came in and did a Series A. And they thought, well, this technology is great. Let's let's try to make this the next Facebook or turn it into a Facebook B2C play. And I was not on the board at that time. And I, I, I wasn't as involved. I was just one of the early investors. 
Um, and you know, they put a lot of, you know, I don't know how many millions in the end, probably over $10 million into it. And, uh, the company was almost acquired by Google, but then it wasn't. Uh, and then it didn't have anything else. And then the investors decided not to invest any further in the company and then the company couldn't attract other investors and it went bankrupt. And that was, a, that was a sad story. And by the way, it happens quite frequently. It happens quite frequently and it can happen because entrepreneurs can be persuaded by venture capitalists who tend to be smart and knowledgeable, knowledgeable, but who can sometimes have a tendency to impose views that are not market tested or views that are not independent or objective. Uh, and that's what I would watch out for is uh, always side on the, on getting the objective independent views, ideally from your customers rather than from, um, you know, people like me, frankly, or or in, or VCs who who they know a lot, or probably do know a lot, but it doesn't mean they're right because um, things can go wrong. And certainly, before you make a major strategic shift, such as going from B to B to B to C, you really, really, really want to make sure you you uh, you have a very high probability of being right. Yeah, thanks for sharing those tactics, Paul. They, they were really great. Um, you're involved in a wide range of technology industries, so from kind of artificial intelligence all the way through to virtual reality and, and a lot more. So you're really at the forefront of you know the latest disruptive technologies and and things that you're seeing really making the biggest impact in in kind of day to day real world environments right now. Could you share you know some of the most exciting things you're seeing and and what you think will make the biggest difference either now or in the very near future? A couple of areas. One of them, without any question, is AI. Artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's being applied in almost every industry. It's getting better and better. Uh, it will continue to get exponentially better. Um, I mean, you cannot build a software company today without having you know AI functions built in. So uh, that, without any question, uh, will, will grow in all forms. So we'll see the large tech, you know, the big tech and large software companies continue to develop all flavors and forms of AI as well as AI-specific companies developing solutions for different industries. Um, and that's all about automation. So one thing that companies have always done since the very beginning, you know, of the notion of a company being, being you know, designed or originated is to optimize. Companies are designed to optimize their operations to make them more efficient. So yes, companies want to grow and they have to grow. Otherwise, if you're not growing, you're dying. But they also want to, you know, as a part of their DNA, become more efficient. So we want to grow. We want to be more efficient. We want to be more systematized. We want to be, uh, you know, as, as as effective as we can be. And that's really what automation and AI is for, and what it's all about. So you can expect that a tool like AI that is designed to meet one of the core objectives of any company, i.e., to become more efficient, to be successful. You can bet on it. Uh, now, having said that, uh, there are thousands of AI companies, so you just you want to be careful about which which company you're, you're dealing with, whether you're a, a user uh, uh, of that software or whether you're an investor or acquire whatever you might be. So uh, that is what's, by the way, uh, supporting automa automation without any question now uh, after this coronavirus crisis. Automation has become more important than ever. Uh, now more than ever, every company is thinking, how do we automate? our operations, our entire value chain? How do we make it more resilient? What can we do? Uh, how do we, and this is part of the strategic reboot, is automating ourselves so that we're not so dependent on the 
possible weak links in the supply chain. So we're not so, which by the way, typically involve humans in some form, or they involve uh, systems that are not so uh, efficient, not so systematized. How do we avoid relying so much on humans who are now we see um, not, not only potentially slow, um, but, but fragile and, uh, and, and not so dependable. I mean, if we have factories all over the world, what happens if we have a rising level of ab absenteeism in those factories? How does that affect our output? Now, my argument is when it comes to people, by the way, is yes, you may want to reduce the number of people, but think of people that, that are, that are a resource that happen to be human as opposed to a resource that happens to be a machine in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, um, if companies can harbor, really harbor the true power of the human being, it's far more powerful than a, than a machine, than a robot or AI. I mean, but the problem is most companies are not probably harboring the power of the human being. Um, and so that leads, by the way, to uh, some brain science, neuroscience, and, and, and other software programs that we're seeing on how to assess people and humans uh, as employees uh, in our company or as contractors, people we can work with. I think we're going to see a lot of development in that because, you know, over the next 10 years, companies will continue to, and I, I think we'll see companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and others leading this, but designing themselves to almost run themselves. Companies that are, that are you know, essentially run by humans in, in terms of design but which is executed increasingly by machines, by robots, by AI software. There's no question we're going to see that. So the humans that you do have in your company and who you are employing, you know, then make the most of them, you know, treat them fully as your most valuable asset because they really are. Otherwise you, you don't, you don't need them and you shouldn't have them. The other thing I'd, I'd say to look out for is transportation. And, and one example of a, of a revolution in transportation is drones. Uh, if we had had parcel drones during this lockdown, life wouldn't be quite as bad. We wouldn't have to worry so much about going out because we would have parcel drones delivering our groceries and our products from Amazon or from some other store right to our doorstep. And we see other forms of transport like Hyperloop, which can replace uh, certain trains, train transport systems. Um, that That is something that may take longer, uh, but we will see again over the next 10 years so yeah, I think for me, those are the things. And then the last one I'd say is food, food tech, uh, which I write about in the book. And I've been following for three or four years now. And while people are now finally understanding the value of plant-based protein, for example, as Beyond Meat has done an IPO, and I think now it's valued at around you know, eight, eight, eight or $9 billion and has done very well, by the way, uh, in, this, in this lockdown, and Impossible Foods and many others, what people are not yet talking about but which I have been for some time and still really believe in is lab meat, cultured-based meat. And this can be can be beef, pork, uh, lamb, it can be fish. There are many companies around the world uh, who are making lab-based meat today, but the price is just a little bit too high for the mass market, but it's constantly coming down, I'd say, you know, again, exponentially. And we could see lab-based meat uh, in our supermarkets and restaurants within, you know, within a few years, let's say. And I think that's a game changer. Because then we don't, you know, then we don't need to, to breed cattle uh, or pigs or sheep for food. We don't need to breed them. We don't need to feed them and water them for three years or however long it takes to, uh, to, to uh, go through the cycle. We don't need to kill them. 
and process all the meat. You know, it's a total game changer. It changes the 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 dynamics of climate control, uh, reduces the energy needs, uh, reduces the water needs. Uh, it, it really it will change the world. Um, so that's technology based, and it is going. It is happening, and it will happen, um, and it will be big because the global meat industry, uh, when you think about it globally, is a very large industry. Uh, and, and I think it will be transformed in the same way that the horse and cart form of transportation was transformed by the automobile. Love it, interesting. So if we change gears for a second, Paul, uh, and we just talk a little bit about COVID-19. Now at the time of recording right now, um, it's still causing huge devastation around the world. It's so, you know, really heartbreaking. Uh, I just wondered from your perspective, you know, how, how how executives can be using this period as a as an opportunity for a strategic reboot? Well, it's uh, it's a good time for reflection uh, and planning, first of all. So, uh, yes, there's crisis crisis management in the near term. But as we're as we start to come out of this in the coming months, then it's an opportunity for executives to look across the entire organization, the entire value chain. And, uh, and, and investigate the areas that are weak, that are not resilient, that are fragile, and that need to be strengthened. And to imagine, you know, step back from it and imagine how could we design our company differently? You know, and we don't have to do it all in-house. So how could we design ourselves so that we can, can be stronger and more resilient, but also so that we could grow faster and so that we could actually increase our margins? You know, how could we use this time to rethink how our company delivers what it delivers today, delivers our products, our services? Um, and, and, and that's really what I would be doing is spending quite a lot of time with not just senior management, but also middle management and getting feedback and insights and input and, uh, and, and piecing that together to get clarity, as, as we do in our business with our clients, to get clarity on how can we you know, how can we redesign uh, what it is that we do for our customers so that our customers can be happier, so they can get a better product or service and get it faster and get it perhaps even more cheaply? And how can we do that um, with less cost ourselves? You know, that's the great opportunity. It just gives a pause. And I think some people are calling this the great pause. It gives us a chance to pause and just look at it all and think, and not not in the sense that, these companies do as a normal course of business by hiring a lot of consultants. The consultants go away and come back with a report or, you know, a thousand slides. And, you know, that, 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 is, that is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the, the executive team, the decision makers really stepping back, pausing and rethinking, you know, what their business actually does for its customers and how they could do it differently. And so uh, last last question, Paul, do you, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or just, just last bits of advice for the listeners out there that are, that are listening to the show? Well, I, yeah, I guess the only thing I, I haven't really talked about that much is mindset. It, it's probably the most important thing to have. Um, and if you look at the successful entrepreneurs out there across different industries, they, you could probably say the one thing that they have in common is that they always believed in themselves. Um, and that many of them have stories of being beaten up and beaten down to the ground. Uh, and, and some of them have lost it all, gone bankrupt once or twice. Uh, and because it happens, you know, because you're, you're, you're human, you're, you're not gonna get it right every single time. You're gonna make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, 
you know, you look at him closely, you'll find he made many mistakes. So mistakes will be made, but if you can just maintain the mindset, um, which is I, probably the most challenging thing for any entrepreneur, because entrepreneurs, by definition, we get beaten up, you know, all the time in all different sorts of ways. Um, it, it's just the nature of the beast. So um, right now, as we're going through a really challenging time, certainly for entrepreneurs who aren't necessarily uh, benefiting in some of the ways that some of the larger companies can from some of the government programs, um, entrepreneurs have to make tough choices. You know, I mean, it's not just the, the, what we've been through so far. It's what the economy is going to look like over the next 6, 12, 24 months. We don't know. It could get a lot worse. So entrepreneurs are going to have to make tough decisions in their scenario planning as they look at plan B and plan C. They're going to have to make tough, call, tough calls about people and about certain expenses. And, uh, and it has to be done. And I guess the, the, you know, having gone through it myself several times, the advice I'd give is just do it, you know, just, just, you know, just, you know, take, take it on and accept it and do it, but do it with the future in mind. And it's just an obstacle like any other. It's like you're, you're climbing the mountain, you need a rest, but you're going to swat away the mosquitoes that are biting you, but the mosquitoes are not going to stop you. You're not going to stop because mos you've got mosquito bites everywhere. It's just painful. And you keep on moving, you know, you just keep on moving till you get to the top of the mountain. I think that's, that's the last bit of advice I'd, I'd give. Paul, it's been really inspiring uh, talking to you for the last few minutes and, and getting to hear, you know, your story and your wisdom and, and so many actionable takeaways there for the listeners. So, so thank you very much for coming on the Digital Transformation and Leadership Show. Thank you, Danny. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Digital Transformation and Leadership Podcast. I'm Danny Levy, and next time we'll have another senior executive talking us through their leadership story and all things digital transformation. Until then, take care.